Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. I'll be joined by Mark Chenoweth, but right now, uh, I'm very happy to uh, welcome our colleague Sheng Li to the program uh, to talk about an unusual win that uh, Sheng and New Civil Liberties had in our Polyweed case. Sheng, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, John. So um, I called this unusual. Why don't you you give our listeners um, a little bit of idea what 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 was the uh, administration it. it administrative agency doing to our client and what happened? Well, just to, this is really a, gives a lot of insight into the Kafkaesque world of uh, administrative enforcement. Um, and just to give a little background, what happened was, and it goes back many decades, Polyweave is a uh, company that makes uh, packaging for, for explosive material and it's, that's used in transportation. It's regulated by the Department of Transportation. Uh, and which which has all kinds of you know regulations you have to jump through, and in the 1990s, Polyweave said, well, we have this two-layer type of packaging. Ask the department, hey, what uh, what is the testing requirement? Is it tw- do we have to test this every 12 months or every 24 months? And someone at the department said every 24 months. Fast forward 20 or so years, the department comes back and says, actually, it was every 12 months, and now you owe us money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, in, and put an enforcement action against Polyweave. It's like, uh, uh, and not it, only that, it sounds it sounds yeah. like flounder in um in uh the uh <laughs> you we you blanked up. You trusted us. Exactly. You were you you were wrong to rely on this other employee twenty or so months ago. Yeah. So now you owe us money. Right. And and after. Uh, you know, after a, a really, it was 2016 when they brought the charges, but it wasn't until 2021, more than five years later, that the charges were finally resolved and Polyweave was hit with a civil penalty order uh, that was issued by the, the, the agency's chief safety officer. Uh, at that point, we, uh, oh, go ahead. How much, how much was the fine? It was for $14,000, which, uh, you know, it, it may not sound as much, but Polyweave is a small company. It's, you know, it's got eight employees, so uh, it's, it's actually, you know, a sizable so dent in its, in its uh, yeah, for, and, for a company and, of its size. And just because you mentioned the word explosive, nothing happened, right? Nobody got hurt. No, nobody got hurt. In fact, the agency investigated people that were using Polyweave's products and said everything they were doing is fine. And, and under the rules, if you put your products in a defective bag, you're supposed to be uh, in trouble too. But those guys were okay, but Polly we wasn't. So that was an inconsistency that was that we tried to tease out, uh, but we didn't get there. Uh, we, we brought we brought a, a an appeal of the agency's order before the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and we raised a number of arguments, including that uh, that the statute actually says uh, a violation has to be knowing before uh, before a civil penalty can be issued, and it can't. And this violation can't possibly have been knowing because they were relying on something the agency told them. So you can't knowingly violate the law by following what the agency told you. 
Uh, well, we'll hope we not. Well, let's let's yeah. uh, put a, let's put a pin on that and see what they say next. But yeah, I would hope that would be the case. Yeah. We also brought a number of due process claims, including that uh, Polywe was denied its jury rights. Uh, and finally, we brought an appointments claim uh, under this case called Free Enterprise a few years back, which uh, which said a an agency adjudicator, the final agency adjudicator, can't be protected from removal by the president, uh, which means he can't. Uh, uh, otherwise, the, the adjudicator would not be politically accountable and can go off the reservation. And here, the chief safety officer who uh, uh, issued the decision against Polly Weave is a career uh, as senior executive service officer who uh, enjoys uh, the civil service protection uh, regime and therefore can't be terminated or removed by the president or any other politically accountable person. Uh, so we, we said, hey, look, this guy's not properly appointed, not appointed according to the Constitution. And uh, funny thing is, uh, right before the agency was supposed to file their their uh, responsive brief in in you know reply to our challenge, uh, the agency kind of said, "Hey, we actually agree he was improperly appointed, but not for the reason you alleged." Uh, apparently, uh, the agency uncovered supposedly for the first time that this guy, the chief safety officer, was never appointed by the department head or the president in the first place. Uh, and under a Supreme Court decision from 2017, Lucia, uh, the really? Supreme Court said, Lucia, yeah, Lucia v. SEC is a, it's a uh, raise of beloved, uh, you know, has a beloved history with our, our organization. But under that decision, uh, an agency adjudicator has to be at least appointed correctly, uh, even, you know, setting aside the removal question, he must be appointed correctly, meaning either the president or the department head, that is Pete Buttigieg, must have appointed the uh, the chief safety officer who who issued the final decision, uh, but apparently that didn't happen. Uh, it, and the reason why we didn't know this is the Department of Transportation doesn't tell people who's prop, who's appointed by the department head and which and who isn't. And they, they do this in secret memos, and then only only present the memos when you when you ask. Uh, so you know, Polly, we presumed this guy who is sitting uh, basically as a you know in a pretend judge's chair in their administrative proceeding was properly appointed to be uh you know an administrative judge in this capacity and he just wasn't and uh so what the agency did is they said hey how about we just call it a do-over you'll we'll vacate the penalty against poly weave and we'll call remand or return this decision back to the agency to prosecute or not uh we actually <laughs> resisted that attempt so you, you call this an don't unusual help me. win <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so the agency offered to you know, zero out the penalty against uh, against uh, our client, and you know we discussed it with our client, and we decided to say, and our client agreed, and we decided to say, not so fast, Your Honor. We actually want to get to this these other questions, including the uh, the double removal protection under free enterprise. Right. Uh, because, ultimately, the because, court. Uh, and, and, and let's well, let's just explain that a little bit. Yeah. So we have a number of issues here that were things that were done wrong to the client, and when the agency does this. They are allowed. Um, they are allowed to sometimes ask for remand back to the agency when they admit they have a problem and tell you they're going to do things differently now and fix that problem, right? So the courts allow that type of remand, but but yeah. but it, it it there's some there's some gamesmanship goes on here because once you've been put through the ringer and they find you and everybody knows they find you and, and you, you, you've uh, injured the company, you want to get it all done in one shot. 
You want the courts to decide all the things they did wrong at one time and not come back in the sweep by and by once they've had a chance to fix all their problems. Yeah, precisely. And we think there's no if they if the agency decides to reprosecute against Hollywood, there's no reason to think they'll they'll do anything differently. Um, ultimately, the court did did dismiss the case. Uh, you know, it, I think it was a close decision. So, you know, we're still happy because the uh, uh, the civil penalty was vacated. And I think the agency would be uh, would should should be careful trying to pre-prosecute Polyweed because we will make the same arguments once again, and we think we will prevail because the agency's proceedings are so so uh, you know unreasonable. Yeah, and um, yeah, and a win, as I always say, a win is a win. And the the other thing is, as far as these removals and and the unitary executive and and who can who can actually penalize you in the government um it's a good outcome because we want we want the various agencies to be following what the supreme court has told them they have to do right so this helps in that sort yeah. of area and um it, it does and go on uh, but i, I want to say it, it's it's the agency's initial admission that its chief safety officer was improperly appointed it's a little surprising because the same chief safety officer has presided over a couple dozen cases at least and issued you know thousands upon thousands if not millions of dollars of civil penalty orders in the in the last four years uh since lucio was decided when lucio was decided the solicitor general went and sent a memo to every agency and said hey properly appoint your uh or properly reappoint your adjudicators based on the rules that the supreme court uh set forth and apparently this agency just tore that memo up and ignored it. And, and, and while the, it's nice that the agency has vacated the uh, penalty against our client, there's dozens of other businesses out there who paid civil penalties to the agency believing they were issued by a properly appointed adjudicator, when in fact, all along, he lacked any authority. And, and that is, so <laughs> this is the other thing about bringing a suit or, or opposing some of this stuff. Um, if if we hadn't brought this case, nobody would know this. This guy would be happily going along making adjudications. Yeah, I know for how who knows how long. Right. And uh, it's really funny. There's another one of our clients that we we medical metal conversion uh, that we just filed a new case. Who uh, this same guy who the agency admitted was improperly appointed issued a civil penalty order two days after. <laughs> The, the lawyers, uh, the agency's lawyers told the court that he was improperly appointed. <laughs> so it just galls me that they, they, they say, well, we made a mistake here, but the same guy's still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at some point, it's not a mistake. It's a, it's a policy. Uh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, but um, but the, all those other people, uh, the administrative agency isn't under any obligation, apparently, to go tell them that uh, – all their fines were uh, improperly uh, uh, adjudicated? Yeah, well, we, we've reached out to some, and we've actually just reached a, uh, uh, an agreement to represent one company to, to attempt to but, uh, yeah, but uh, my recoup or re get reimbursed. Yeah, but oh, sorry, go ahead. the agency doesn't have to say anything, right? Yeah, the agency is no uh, – I mean, I, I would think its duty of candor would have to reveal some of this information – 
But it's you know it, it falls upon groups like ours to go around you know calling these these companies up and saying we think you you were improperly fined two or and, three years ago. Well, Shang, I think um, we're about out of time on this, but that is an incredible story, and congratulations on your win. Thank you, John. Welcome back to Administrative Static. This is Mark Chenoweth with John Vecchioni, and we have asked Shang Lee to uh, stick around and uh, talk with us in this segment as well, because he has been uh, the lead counsel for NCLA in our representation of the Cato Institute uh, in the the lawsuit against the Biden administration over uh, the student loan forgiveness uh, fiasco. And that case where we're representing Cato is is stuck in the district court of Kansas. The judge has not ruled on any of the pending uh, motions uh, uh, before him. Uh, so we are going ahead and filing a, an amicus brief uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in the two cases that are now pending in front of the Supreme Court. So that's Biden v. State of Nebraska et al. And that, that et al. is, is uh, I think, four or five other states, including uh, Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, South Carolina, and Iowa. Uh, and then there's a case, a Department of Education v. Mira Brown uh, out of the Fifth Circuit. And so uh, we're going to, uh, so this, this amicus, I guess by the time this program airs, the amicus brief will have, uh, will have been filed, Shank. So uh, one of the things, one of the main concerns that we had, and one of the concerns that has surfaced uh, with uh, really both of the uh, cases that have that have come up to the Supreme Court uh, is whether or not these plaintiffs have standing to oppose the student loan forgiveness uh, program, the um, the loan cancellation program, uh, we can call it. And in particular, there was a brief filed by two law professors, Will Bod from University of Chicago and Stan Bray from Notre Dame University, suggesting that even the states don't have standing uh, to sue. So I thought maybe we we could start by if you could maybe explain why they think the states don't have standing to sue. And then we'll, then we can shift to why we think there's another reason why the states do have standing to sue that, uh, uh, that is the main subject of our amicus brief. Sure, Mark. Uh, about two decades ago, the Supreme court came up with a decision called uh, Massachusetts v. EPA, where it determined that states have some special solicitude in uh in standing arguments and uh, that allows states to have standing in many instances where normal litigants would not. And uh, uh, the, the amicus brief uh, from, um, from Professor Brown from Bold, uh, you know, criticize that doctrine and say, you shouldn't, you know, th- there's no reason to give states this sort of special, special power to have standing. And in any event, uh, the, solicitude, I think they states, call it sometimes. Yeah, special solicitor, exactly. There's no, there's no, that's not in the Constitution at all. 
And furthermore, they, they argue that the, the state's best theory of standing is based on this Missouri agency that finances uh, loans and uh, they, or services loans. And they say that that's the wrong uh, plaintiff for this particular lawsuit because that agency hasn't sued, only Missouri has sued. Um, so, so those are sort of more kind of both the special solicitor argument and the getting a, a, an independent agency within the state as the basis standing when the state itself is suing are both sort of circuitous ways to get the standing. We think they probably should hold up, but we tell the court in our brief, you know, listen, Supreme Court, you don't actually need to get into uh, these maybe, you know, peripheral uh, ways of getting to standing because there's a very easy way here um, of, of finding economic standing against the states, and that's through the statute that Congress passed uh, over a decade ago called the uh, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which Precisely. what that does is, yeah, so, well, that's a congressionally enacted program. Oh, go ahead, Mark. Well, I was just going to say, so as you're saying, it's a congressionally enacted program, and that is the basis for standing uh, that uh, NCLA came up with, and we asserted on behalf of the Cato Institute in the pending lawsuit in Kansas. But it doesn't just work for public interest organizations uh, like the Cato Institute. It also works for state governments, uh, because when Congress created this program, they they created it to apply to both kinds of public service uh, employers. That's right. And what the program does is if uh, you're a borrower and you work for what's called a qualified employer or qualified public service employer for 10 years, you can, uh, you, you can have all your entire balance of student loans forgiven. And qualified employer, as you say, it's, it's includes both 501c3 companies like Cato, but it also includes state government agencies. So and, and, and the, at the end of the 10-year period, you get all your loans forgiven. And so that's, that's a huge benefit to the employers. Uh, it's essentially a, a, a deferred compensation subsidy that makes it easier for the employers to attract college-educated employees and lowers their uh, labor costs. Uh, but that, that benefit depends on the size of the loan that's ultimately forgiven. So if you forgive a sizable portion of that loan today, then the amount that's forgiven at the end of the 10-year period is going, to be, is going to be reduced. In fact, according to the Biden administration, it'll be zero for about 20 million borrowers. And those borrowers will have no incentive whatsoever uh, under, the, under the, loan for, the, the congressionally enacted loan forgiveness program to work for a company uh, like Cato or to work for a state government. And that's you know, a very you know, bread-and-butter economic harm when you uh, take away a, a deferred compensation subsidy that goes to the employer and makes it harder for them to hire people and makes it more expensive for them to, uh, to keep them, you know, to, to retain them. Exactly right. So the loan cancellation program directly harms the states because it takes 20 million employees out of the uh, potential pool for them to hire, or at least the potential pool for them to hire on this preferred basis uh, that, that makes working for a state government more attractive than it would uh, otherwise be. So that's not the only Precisely. argument it, that we make uh, in the brief. And go ahead if you wanted to finish off on the standing thought. Oh, no, no, that's, that's, that's precisely right, Mark. So th there, there are other arguments that we make, including the fact that uh, the HEROES Act violates Article One of the Constitution, particularly the Vesting Clause uh, and the Appropriations Clause. And uh, may, you know, maybe we can get into more of this uh, another time, but uh, do you want to talk about uh, either the vesting clause or the appropriations clause and how, how the heroes, how the petitioner's interpretation, that is the government's interpretation of the HEROES Act, uh, violates one or both of those clauses? 
Well, yeah, I mean, simply put, the government's interpreting the act to allow it to rewrite congressionally enacted laws. Con Congress enacted, uh, you know, laws that allow uh, allow kind of debt to be canceled under very specific circumstances. When, you know, when a borrower is disabled or unemployed or, you know, suffering uh, really harsh economic, uh, you know, conditions. And uh, the department just said, you know what, we're going we're to cross those conditions out and we'll just invent our own conditions. And that's clearly an act of legislation, which uh, Article 1, Section 1 says uh, all legislative powers vested in Congress and not to be exercised by the executive branch, such as the Department of Education. Uh, and, and the same is true for, for or under the Appropriations Clause, which says only Congress has the power of the purse. Uh, only, you know, no program can be, can be funded, including debt relief programs, unless Congress appropriates some amount of money to, to, to finance that program. And here, uh, the department just conjured money out of thin air to, uh, to finance the debt relief, which is estimated to be about half a trillion dollars uh, to 40 million borrowers. And that's a clear exercise of Congress's exclusive power of the purse and thus not permitted by the Constitution. Yeah, and it also violates bicameralism and presentment because this is rewriting the statute without going through that process, which Congress and the president normally have to go through if they want to uh, to rewrite a law. Right. So this is, this is really just an abomination of a constitutional shortcut. And, and no matter how uh, you know, President Biden and uh, uh, and Senator uh, Sanders, Bernie Sanders, uh, want to, to dress it up <laughs> with a map of the United States and, and post-it notes, well, John, go ahead. I know you I, want well, to get in yeah, on this. Because as you, you know, I did post on this and I rarely post on this, but I saw that, that the thing is, it, Sheng, this is just like if the president wanted to say after Congress had passed a tax cut, because Bernie was very upset that Congress passed tax cuts. And he said, This Congress uh, passed these tax cuts. Tax cuts for the wealthy. Uh, exactly. So this is like that. And the thing is, they the key there is that they passed them. This would be like the president saying that he's right. the Congress people he likes. <laughs> he doesn't that. Oh, no, we're not going to tax these people. If, if, yes. if, actually, yeah. if he just said, I'm not going to tax unions anymore or, or uh, people with student loans or people with student loans. Exactly. Um, it's the same thing. You're, there's another there's another branch with that job. Right. And it and it, it's it, it reminds me of this argument that Philip Hamburger makes about the dispensing power that there was this royal prerogative in pre-colonial or uh, in colonial times where the king of England, King George III and his predecessors could just decide not to apply the law to certain people. It was considered a kind of dispensing power. And that was absolutely something that the colonists were aware of, that they objected to, and that they did not give that sort of dispensing power uh, to the president of the United States or to the executive branch in writing our constitution. And Philip has has written a very uh, eloquently and persuasively uh, on this point. And if President Biden were allowed to do what he's doing, it would be an exercise of dispensing power, from what I can tell. And so, you know, I think that uh, that that's an additional uh, concern, uh, not not really the focus of uh, of our amicus brief, uh, but an additional concern about what's going on. Uh, what's going on here? Because if if they can rewrite the statute in the way that Shang was talking about, they can rewrite this statute. They could rewrite any statute, and at that point, you've really cut the Congress uh, out of its role as uh, as legislator and and policymaker. And here, it's very clear that you're doing that because Congress already had another policy, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, that had particular parameters around it, that had particular. Uh, 
appropriations uh, for uh, for forgiveness there, and and you don't see that uh, with the program that the president uh, has crafted on his own, the loan cancellation program. So, uh, Shang, is there is there any other aspect of? Uh, well, of... yeah, go ahead. We have about yeah. One seconds. last thing is that is that the government made this argument in their brief that uh, uh, they've actually been pausing loan payments for many many years, and uh, and no one's challenged that. Therefore, this you know cancellation must be legal. And we explain in our amicus that the pause was just as illegal. And in fact, the pause started okay because it was Congress created a six month pause, and then the gov the federal government came in and just crossed out Congress's deadline for that debt relief program, which was September 2020, and just kept on extending it and extending and extending it. And that's, that causes the same problem here. When you cross that one deadline and replace it another, that's, that's, that's right. You know, yeah, just, because, just because what you did was illegal before doesn't mean what you're, what you're doing now is okay. So uh, two wrongs don't make a right, and we'll talk more about that issue down the road. Thanks for being with us on Administrative Static. We'll be back with more right after this.